When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. We've talked a lot about inflation and the forces that drive it. Supply, demand, supply chain. If you're caught up on money rehab, you could probably teach an Econ 101 class at this point on these principles. But what we haven't covered yet is how U.S. trade policy affects inflation. That's what we're talking about today with Fred Hochberg. Fred is one of the foremost experts on this topic in the world, really. And you'll hear why in a second. We talk about the role of the most important bank you've never heard of, Trump-era tariffs and the China of it all. Here's Fred. Fred Hochberg, welcome to Money Rehab. Good to be here. Good to see you again. Good to, it's great good to, to see you. chatting with you again and connecting again. You chaired the Export-Import Bank under Obama, which is a big deal. I read that you were the longest serving president in the bank's history. So let's start there for folks who might not know. What the heck is the Export-Import Bank? Sure thing. So the Export-Import Bank was actually started by Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the Depression. And why was it started? It was started because there was a need to put more Americans to work. And FDR recognized that one thing that puts Americans to work is producing more goods and services. And in those days, let's be clear, it was more goods. And exporting is a way of expanding our markets. But today we say that 5% of the world's population lives in the United States and 95% lives outside. So if you're not thinking about selling to the rest of the world, you're missing out on potentially 95% of the potential market you could have. And what President Roosevelt realized is also that why don't people do more exporting? Sometimes it's because they can't get the financing or fear that maybe they won't get paid or the financial sort of roadblocks to it. So the Export Input Bank was started in 1934 to try and find a way of help having the government step in by guaranteeing a loan that a bank might make to a small company or that a bank might make to a foreign buyer so that they can buy U.S. goods and services. And that's so like advancing the money so that they're not out money, so that they're right. not dissuaded from doing it. That's right. So that if you may have them, you still have to compete on product and price and the characteristic of the product. But if financing is what's holding you back, there are some government solutions that can help take that off the table. That's what the ex Export Input Bank does. It sounds very fancy, by the way. Exim Bank, for short. It's not an actual bank. Like, where did you work? Did you work at the White House? Did you go to a bank? We have an office right across from the White House, right on Lafayette Square. Now, we're not a bank. We don't give out toasters. We don't accept <laughs> deposits. But You don't get little mints? 
No mints. I guess that guaranteeing loans is a much bigger deal than getting little mints. So let's walk through a tangible example for somebody. Let's say they are running a shop that makes toasters and they want to start selling it overseas. And to do that, it's really expensive for tell me all the reasons why it's so expensive and people might be dissuaded from doing it and then why they could actually get financing or help to do it from Exim Bank. Let me use a real example. There's a company right here in Miami where I am speaking to you for today called Demitech. And they make, in the early days, they made surgical sutras that would be used during surgery. Actually, during COVID, they were making masks and also test kits. And about 95% of their business was overseas. And so what the Export-Import Bank does is twofold. One, it provides them with working capital because they need to borrow money to make the product and prepare it and ship it overseas. And sometimes your local bank may say, well, it's fine if you have a customer there in Florida, you have a customer in Texas, because we know if there's a problem, the company in Texas doesn't pay. It's not that hard to collect in the within the United States. It can get much harder to collect if you're selling to Egypt or the Middle East or some places in Africa or even in Western Europe. So what the Export-Import Bank just does is works with a company like Demitech and said, we'll guarantee it. If for some reason your buyer overseas doesn't pay, we'll pay so the bank feels comfortable making the loan. And then we go and make sure that, that client pays us back. So we're providing insurance in that way. Because if you're like the suture company, you have to put money into manufacturing before you ever get paid from wherever you sold it in Egypt. And probably those accounts receivable will take a long time. So fronting the money takes away some of the pressure pain points. Exactly. For it takes away the businesses. pressure, the pain point and the risk. Because as I said, you might say, well, I can sell to Texas that I don't, I'm not worried about. But if I'm selling to Egypt or India or Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, if they don't pay, it's not as easy to collect on that yeah. almost foreign receivables. Is there uh, any guidelines around the types of companies that can get funding from the Exim Bank? Do you have to be a certain size? Can small businesses do it? How do you get It can be very that? small. There was a company Early on, I met called Jenny's Pickles. They made pickles and exported them overseas, as an example. They were a teeny company doing less than a million dollars a year. The only real criteria is, the, going back to President Roosevelt, the Export-Import Bank was about supporting U.S. jobs. So the goods have to be made here in America and shipped from America. We did a lot of work in those date years with General Electric, for example. If they make power turbines in America and they have need internal credit for their buyers overseas, we can do that. If they're making them in France, where they do a lot of manufacturing, or Germany or in Brazil, we don't we're not about the company, we're about US jobs of the American worker. Yeah, that makes sense. Anybody who wants to maybe get funding or help from the Exim Bank, is the application process stringent? Is it hard to go through? Government stuff is always hard and like very red tapey. Right. I sound like a commercial for it because I think it's so cool, but I know it's not maybe the most mainstream 
thing or even well-known. Well, we tried to do a lot to simplify it. And one of the things I'm proud of that the team did at the Export Import Bank is we really reduced how long you wait for an approval. And we were getting better than 98% of our approvals out in less than 30 days. And the ones that really took longer than 30 days were generally multi-billion dollar deals that are just impossible to complete in 30 days. If you're helping to build a power plant or a solar or a wind farm, that takes a lot longer. So we reduce that. Mostly what we tell people to do, we, I'm not there any longer, what we would tell people to do, obviously, is first thing you go to your bank. You should talk to your banker because she or he may have experience with the Export-Import Bank and could say, no, we can do this on our own or we'll use the Export-Import Bank. And if your bank is unfamiliar, we would tell people, go to xmexim.gov. Export-Import Bank has about 15, 20 regional offices around the country. And there's also an 800 number. And we even and we also had a chat function to help people if you had trouble filling out the application. I don't understand this, how you can do that. Yeah, that's very cool because you know, that I'm like rooting for the Jenny's Pickle lady. Not so much the power plant. They can take a long time, but I root for her. So let's get back to the macro economics of it. You said that one of the focuses of your tenure was to champion the power of the U.S. exports to boost our economy by creating jobs. Now, interestingly, you now argue that imports are where we should focus. You're right. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal last summer. And in the piece, I talk about there is also a value of imports. And when I talk about imports, one, we are facing unprecedented inflation. It's thankfully beginning to slow and taper down. Our inflation has been running at a high rate. And you have to look at what's causing inflation to be such a high rate. One factor, and it's only one factor, obviously, are tariffs. President Trump uh, put in a number of tariffs on steel and aluminum, as well as tariffs on China. And those raise the cost to American consumers because a tariff is nothing more. It's a sales tax. It's a consumption tax. So I made the argument we could actually reduce some of these tariffs and make it easy on the American pocketbook and reduce the cost. When President Trump put in the tariffs, I argued against them. I thought that they were hurting the American consumer, hurting American innovation. And at that time, we estimated Close to it could cost the American consumer about an average of $1,000 a year. So I've never been a big fan of tariffs. And with high inflation, seems like an opportune time to really look at that. So where were the tariffs placed? Well, the t- tariffs were placed primarily on Chinese goods. Um, and the problem with that is, one, we pay the tariffs. The American consumer pays the tariffs, not the Chinese, not the company that is shipping goods to America, but it's collected when the goods hit our shores or get off an airplane. And the importer has to pay that. And generally, the importer is passing that cost on to the consumer. So that's why I think tariffs are a bad idea. The other thing is and we get a lot of innovation from imports. I would argue, and some would argue against me, that But American cars are far better today because they faced foreign competition in the 80s, and it made American cars better and more globally competitive. When GM, Ford, and Chrysler had 90% of the market, they had very little incentive to improve quality and reduce costs. When they started facing companies like Toyota and Honda and others, 
they actually had to get their quality in line and their reliability in line. And we don't ever, you don't ever talk anymore, Nicole, about getting a lemon as a no. So, so I believe imports are important as, as partly as inputs into products. The most innovative passenger jet plane we make right now, the Dreamliner, the wings come from Japan. It is important to have global and the term people use instead of just supply chains, they call them value chains because it's not just buying a cheaper widget or a cheaper fastener. It's what it's really is saying. If we can get the best technology and the best manufacturing on the wing assembly from Japan, let's use that. The iPhone is the perfect example. Those components come from 43 different countries in order to make the iPhone really work. Without inputs and without those value chains coming from Switzerland, the Netherlands, raw materials from the Congo, the glass on it actually comes from Corning, New York. A lot of the displays come from Korea, actually from Samsung. But putting all that together both reduced the cost and made it the most innovative product it is today. And that's what competition does, right? No matter yeah. where it's from. It forces companies to be better, do better, make more innovative stuff. So these tariffs that were placed on imports, like I remember going while I was at CNBC and maybe at Bloomberg to the ports out here in Los Angeles and Long Beach. They're incredible. They're just like so fascinating to watch all of these containers come in to the United States. So as soon as some goods come in, that's when the tax is placed. And then the person who was essentially ordering those goods would need to pay the tax. And ultimately, that would pass on to the customer. So you're saying if we roll those back, inflation will go along with it? It is a help. The real driver of inflation is the Federal Reserve Bank and what they charge for interest rates. So the major job is frankly outside the hands of the politicians, outside the hands of President Biden in the White House, but really with the Federal Reserve. So let's be clear about that. But reducing tariffs is one, one thing that can be done by the administration and can be pressured from Congress as one small step in that regard. But the major thing is with the Federal Reserve. And we have seen a slowing of inflation. And one of the things I think that we lost track of is during the pandemic, people were not traveling, not going to movies, not going to concerts, and they were home. And so people were spending more money on TVs and furniture and goods. And that partly caused a great backlog in the ports because demand for goods went way up about 15%. And our use of things like TV, services, movies dropped. So that's a large shift to try and absorb in a very short period. Of this is like your Super Bowl, Fred. I don't think I've ever thought about the supply chain as much in my life as I've thought about it the last few years. This was the time that imports and exports became the most sexy and top of mind for everybody because the whole system was mucked up. So what is the supply chain? Like we talk about it so much. Right. So for example, I know, you know, we're, if you look at your iPhone, when I when we talk about a supply chain, the, as I said, the rare earth minerals that are used so that the circuitry works well, actually, most of that comes from the Congo. And the the 
portion of your iPhone that calculates how many steps you take a day. If you want to get your 10,000 steps in, that comes from the Netherlands. And if you want to see whether if you turn your phone sideways or upright so that it always knows what direction it is, that gyroscope comes from Switzerland. So when we talk about the supply chain, it's pulling all those components together to create the iPhone. And what the supply chain is doing or value chain is we're getting the best thinking. We're getting innovators, engineers, entrepreneurs from around the world, all contributing together to make a better product. It is assembled in China. And partly because of just the way global trade works, the iPhone is, says made in China, but a very small portion, less than $10 of the value of an iPhone actually is Chinese. It's the expense of things like the gyroscope, the thing that counts your steps, the glass on the front, the display that comes from Korea. That's where all the value is. The assembly is what's done in China. And because that's where the product takes its form, it's considered a Chinese product, even though, as I said, less than 10%, probably in the range of maybe 3% of the iPhone actually is from China. Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Money rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And now for some more money rehab. China has been a hot topic lately, too. And you've been talking about this for years, and now it's really come to the forefront again as well. In 2020, you wrote a medium piece called I've been traveling to China for 40 years. It's time we get this relationship right. A few questions about it. But the first is what's wrong with the relationship? Right now, it is one area that both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill and both the House and the Senate can agree. They all think China is a bad actor and needs to be contained. 
So there are not a lot of people who in government can be advocating for let's find ways to work together. And the it's very easy to say anybody is, oh, they're too soft on China. They're not tough enough on China. We need to be tough with China. We need to compete with China. And we need to find ways to work with them when it comes to climate, when it comes to global health. We need to find ways to work together. China is too big and too powerful and too rich a country for us to try and pretend we can operate and forget them or to put them in a corner and not deal with them. So it isn't easy. One of the things that I think we see President Biden doing is saying we need to get the rest of the world with us to work together on issues around China. We cannot just isolate them. We, can, we can't do it by ourselves. But doing business with China, as you mentioned before, is really tricky, right? It's not the same as the way we would do business. I would say I would even say it's treacherous because if you're doing business with China, there is not the same sense of what we value. What makes our economy really so spectacular and even when it's laboring is there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of what we call intellectual property, whereas the innovation we talked earlier about the iPhone or innovations in automobile manufacturing and so forth. So in China, it's much, much harder to protect those ideas, to protect the patents and copyrights that essentially are what makes our economy really run and tick and excel to such a degree. And that's really at risk when you do business in China, because if they own 51% of your company, it's much harder to keep your intellectual property. And what's the secret sauce, like we used to call it McDonald's, keep that secret. You said that the strategy of the Cold War won't work with China. We need to find a better way. Let's remember when we had a quote unquote, a, first of all, just the idea, it's a war. A cold war is still a war. We just don't want it to be a hot war. When we were in a cold war with the Soviet Union, we wanted to make sure each side was trying to make sure the other side would quote unquote cry uncle and no longer be a viable country. That's where a cold war is trying to defeat one side. We aren't going to defeat China. China is not going to defeat the United States. We're going to have to find ways. And it's very, it's challenging. I'm not, it's not at all easy. Find ways where we can cooperate and where we can compete. And I think the problem today is under Xi Jinping, the president of China, there is, we've narrowed the areas they really want to work together on. And that's, that's the, It's very hard to negotiate or find common ground when the other side is not interested. And so that's, I think, the challenge. There is no easy cookbook recipe for how to fix things with China because in many ways, they're not interested in working with the United States. They're not that interested in working with a lot of the West. They think the West is corrupt. They think the West is doesn't have the kind of moral values, similar to what Putin has said about the West. And that makes it very difficult to find common ground and find things we can work on. And how do you think that's going to affect the U.S. consumer or U.S. small businesses? I think we're seeing a couple of things happening. One, some things are being reshored. The fancy term is they're making things more in America. Two, I think there are more goods that were made in China that are going to be made elsewhere. Apple is looking to assemble the iPhone in India. A lot more clothes 
that used to come from China, coming from places like Vietnam and Bangladesh. So I think companies today, if they need to expand, they're really being very careful if they expand in China, because the political risk, which was really not such the case five years ago, is so much more extreme. That has to factor into people's decision-making. So I think that's a major change in trade, Nicole. I think one just the political risk between China, Taiwan, Russia has just changed our view of globalism and the free flow of goods and services moving and people can get the best product at the best price or the best service. There are much more little barriers to that today than there were even five or 10 years ago. Yeah, I feel like just in a macro sense, there's a rolling back of this globalization or globalized economy. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, I think the sense of where China is coupled with the coronavirus, which put a premium when we were short of personal protective equipment, people called PPE. And now I don't think that the problem in that case, just for a quick aside, is we didn't have any inventory. I make the analogy, if there's a bad hurricane or snowstorm, you fill the car with gas, you buy a few extra groceries, you fill the freezer, we left the cupboards bare. And yeah. so that's one reason we were caught flat-footed and caught without some of those essential protective equipment for healthcare workers. But <clears throat> so that won't be solved. But I think that we're in a period where there's less trust. I think there's less trust. The coronavirus, I think, made the world a little less trusting of each other. People wanted to hoard vaccines, hoard ventilators, not share them globally. So I think we I think we could move back on globalization, move back somewhat on the free flow of goods and services. Yeah, I feel like barring life or death, E or vaccines or ventilators or anything actually urgent, there's not an urgent need for dresses made in China, right? We could do without that. We have to remember one thing China did, which people don't like to, on the positive side, they were an enormous driver of global growth, both in producing inexpensive products that kept our inflation at bay. You can buy a large flat screen TV for a couple of hundred dollars today. So one was inflation. Two, they actually bought a lot of goods and raw materials from the rest of the world. So they drove the economy. They were growing at six, seven, eight, nine percent. So they were helping to fuel global growth. Something like 400 million people in China alone were, came out of poverty. Those are some positives. There are also a lot of negatives, but we have to remember there were some positive positives in the growth of China. And I think President Obama said once very clearly, we are better off with a stronger and a vibrant China, but one that wants to play with the rest of the world. Yeah, there's always good and bad in any relationship, of course. And so for the American consumer, do you feel like there's an obligation to buy American? Do you think this made in the USA movement is going to come back more? Do you think there's an obligation the other way around to have things bought and sold in the US? I think there's people have often always often felt that way. And that is why BMW, Honda, Toyota make their cars in America. <laughs> And one thing I did put in my book, when you look at the most American car on the road, it was not necessarily a GM, a Ford or a Chrysler. 
for many years, it was a Honda or a Toyota. Just this year, it happens to be Tesla. But for many years, of the top 10, six or seven were what, what you and I might call a foreign car, i.e. made like by- Like a German car. Yeah. German, but it was made here. Right. It was made here. So it was either a Honda or a Toyota or a BMW. There are only four cars that in the early days, it, it, as recently as two, three years ago, that you would think of as America, a Chevy, a Jeep, or things like that. Some things we don't make very much here. You mentioned dresses. We don't make a lot of clothes in America, and we actually benefit from that. There, we have a lot of different design and style and pricing, and frankly, it isn't really necessarily displacing American workers. We don't make shoes in America anymore. These products we generally are imported. And the benefit would be a lower price, innovation, style, design. I was at a buffet that hit me. It's a seasonal fruit. We don't have seasonal fruits. You eat blueberries 12 months a year. They don't grow 12 months a year in America. We have raspberries. We have avocados. We have all our table. Our diet is very much enhanced by global trade. Many years ago, for example, you'd get blueberries in sort of July, August, September. Now you get them 12 months a year. It actually did not necessarily hurt American farmers because what it did is it made people really want to eat blueberries. And as a result, frankly, we produced more blueberries, about two times as many than we did before we imported them. So sometimes imports also spur American companies and American consumer tastes. Because it floats all boats. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes. I mean, the advantages of trade are spread far and wide, and the pain is often very localized. The benefits of trade in terms of the selection of things you have, look at your supermarket in terms of fruits, vegetables, different commodities you can buy. So we all benefit from that in terms of pricing and selection and innovation. The pain is if a factory, when a factory closes, it hurts those people in that community. It hurts that town or county, reduces the tax rate, reduces the ability to earn a living in those communities. Places like Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania lost a lot of jobs due to trade. We created a lot of jobs, more jobs in the rest of the country, but they really felt the pain more acutely. We end the show typically with a tip you can take straight to the bank. I would find it hard to believe if you were ever in a time where you needed money rehab, but would you give a tip you could take straight to the bank to help improve your money or help think about all of this for consumers? I, the thing I often would say is a little bit harder in an inflationary period. If you go to a, whether you go to a Walmart or a local store and you buy clothing or groceries at a really good price, most people think I'm a really smart shopper. They don't think, maybe because of trade and because we've actually importing those goods that I've got a bigger selection and I can I, my dollar will go further. So if I was to say some, take something to the bank is do what's smart and wise for your family. And if the best product happens to be an import, then you should buy it. And hopefully that will spur in American companies to make better products at better prices and satisfy consumer needs. Money Rehab is a production of Money News Network. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Money Rehab's executive producer is Morgan Lavoie. Our researcher is Emily Holmes. 
Do you need some money rehab? And let's be honest, we all do. So email us your money questions, moneyrehab at moneynewsnetwork.com to potentially have your questions answered on the show or even have a one-on-one intervention with me. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive video content. And lastly, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening and for investing in yourself, which is the most important investment you can make.